Hi, thanks for tuning in to the Velocity Church Podcast. We love to hear about lives being changed. So if you've been positively affected by Velocity Church, send us an email at amen at findvelocity.org. Thanks, and enjoy the message. So today's message is out of a book called Sandcastle Kings. And if you saw that intro video, the element we ran before, uh, before the worship team came up on stage, it's a little bit scary. It kind of seems like, like Bane from Batman is going to be here to deliver the word. It's, you know, it's a pretty intense book, honestly. So this is a book called Sandcastle Kings. It's by Pastor Rich Wilkerson. And Rich Wilkerson is the lead pastor of a church called the VU Church in Miami. Now, when I heard that, I was like, Vu Church, what does that mean? It's short for rendezvous, because that's the cool thing to do in Miami is you shorten stuff like that. So it's a, it's a ministry that he started. Rendezvous started as a youth um, worship night that he and his wife just felt called to lead and grew into thousands of people attending and opening a church. Uh, but maybe what Rich Wilkerson is most famous for is officiating the Kim and Kanye wedding. So this was... Uh, when pa- I think that's why Pastor Justin asked me to preach this week, because he knows, like, I'm a huge Kim and Kanye guy. So I'm, I'm excited to get to bring the word to you guys this week. Um, Sandcastle Kings is a really great book. We're only going to touch a little part of it, but it's about, um, it's a number of stories that are interwoven all out of the Gospel of Luke that are all oriented around where do you plant your foundation? Where's your foundation? Setting your foundation in God's Word. So today we're going to look only at one of those stories. And this is a story that's actually found only in Luke. It's not in the other Gospels. Jesus' encounter with a widow on the road to Nain. And I have to tell you, like, it's an intimidating thing to be asked to preach a sermon. And it's something that, uh, so, you know, you get those worries about, am I doing this right? Am I, am, am I prepared for the word? And so my 3 a.m. panic this morning, woke up at 3 a.m. You know, you wake up and random things go through your head. Mine was... Am I pronouncing Nain right? Do I have that wrong? Is it Nain? Is it something weird that I don't even know about? So I'm super grateful that, uh, for the YouVersion app because I could go on there and go to the chapter and hit play and have them read the audiobook. So it is, in fact, Nain. And it has the bonus of my wife woke up while I was doing this and rolled over and looked at me. And I know she was comforted by the fact, wow, Jacob's really in the Word. He's up at 3 in the morning <laughs> studying, studying his Bible. So... Let's jump right into this story, which is found in Luke chapter 7. And uh, so you can go there. We're going to start in verse 11. We're going to put those words on the screen for you, but I'll read it. And it says, Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, His heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. And then the dead boy sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. So what I want to talk to you about today, I'm going to start with a question. Has there ever been a time in your life when you were hurting, and somebody says some words that maybe they intended to be helpful, but only makes things worse? Has that ever happened to you? Am I the only person that's ever happened to? We don't say the right things sometimes. Sometimes we say the wrong things. Um, our good intentions don't always translate well. 
Um, but sometimes we say things just because we feel like we should, right? We feel the social pressure to say something when our heart's not really in it because we feel like that's the socially appropriate thing to do. Um, I've been on the receiving end of that, and that hurts, but I'll be honest with you, I've also been on the giving end of it. So that's what we're gonna, that's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. And in coming up with this message, honestly, I'm not sure I wanted to tell you about it because I know if I do that, some of you are gonna judge me. Some of you after hearing this might decide that you never wanna come back to Velocity Church. But I believe, and I hope you believe, that Christ has the power to redeem everything. So I'm gonna step out in faith and tell you about it. But before I do that, will you pray with me? Lord, just wanna give you thanks. I wanna give you thanks for this beautiful Sunday where we can come together as your family to get immersed in your word, Lord. I just ask that as I deliver the sermon that you speak through me, Lord, make it your words coming out of my mouth, not my words, your thoughts going into my head, not my thoughts, Lord. I'm just calling on you right now because I need you, just like we all need you. It's in your son's name we pray together. Amen. So, we're ready for the confession? Here's where we're going to start. Here's my confession. I'm a University of Kentucky basketball fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Better, better than that. Bring the booze. I can handle it. I love the University of Kentucky and their basketball team. I grew up there. Um, I don't know how much you know about Kentucky, but there's not a whole lot to celebrate there sometimes. It's hard to grow up in a state where the state motto is, it could be worse, at least you don't live in West Virginia. So in Kentucky, we celebrate the University of Kentucky basketball, Big Blue Nation. Um, again, full disclosure, I drank the Kool-Aid about Coach Cal, big fan. Um, that's me, I grew up with it. I still have the I hate Christian Leitner t-shirt. It's in my closet. I still wear it sometimes. Some of you get that reference. Some of you weren't even born when that happened, probably. Um, but even if you hate me, just remember, at Velocity Church, one of our culture points is we are family. So I hope that if nothing else, we can at least be united in a common hatred of Duke. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, so we're okay with that. So if you know me, you know this creates a pretty significant conflict in my life. I'm a pastor here, but I'm also a professor at KU. I started there in 2010, and I can't even begin to tell you how many times I had family members and friends when I told people I was moving here to take the job at KU, um, asking about basketball loyalties. And at the time, honestly, I wasn't sweating it. I wasn't worried. And why wasn't I worried? Because different conferences. Um, when I moved here, KU and UK had only played each other eight times since 1985. So no big deal. I can lay low, I can avoid it. And then what happens? The Champions Classic and the SEC Big 12 Challenge. Now it seems like Kentucky plays Kansas more than it plays like Tennessee and Florida. They've played five times since 2011. So that makes life difficult. So again, when I moved here, I figured it was a can't lose. What are the odds they're gonna play each other? And since they're both dominant teams, I can just celebrate both sides. Um, but it turned into a can't win for me. So I can say this, again, here's my confession. I'm not a Jayhawk. I hope you can respect it. I'm proud to work at KU. Lawrence is my home. I don't root against the Jayhawks ever. I'm happy when they win. I enjoy going to games and I watch a lot of KU basketball and I appreciate the strong traditions and I appreciate the fact that KU is an elite basketball program. But I'm not a Jayhawk. But I hope you can be happy at least 
that my Kentucky Wildcats have carried on the time-honored tradition of embarrassing Mizzou. So, you know, I think we can, again, be unified in that. Um, but I'm just not a Jayhawk. And you're sitting there, and you're judging me. And I can tell, because the lights are up, but I can still see your faces. Like, I can tell that some of you are judging me. But I want to ask you this. Imagine that the dream job that you'd wanted since you were 20 opened up at the University of Kentucky, and you moved there. Would you instantly draw, how many of you grew up KU basketball fans? Hands in the air, grew up KU basketball fans. How many of you would just instantly drop that loyalty when you moved? Anybody? No hands. How many of you would say, when the moving truck showed up, hey, all that basketball tradition, that box marked basketball tradition, that just doesn't go on the truck. I doubt you're gonna do that. So, but again, I understand that this is hard for some of you to deal with. And so if you need to talk about this further, if you have further complaints, feel free to email. And we're gonna put that email right up on the screen. Just write that down. Send your email, send your hate. You know, God is big enough to deal with all of it. So maybe you see where this is going. It's going to April 2nd, 2012. Actually, I'm just gonna skip right over that. We're gonna go straight to April 3rd, 2012, which is a Tuesday. I'm back at work. On cloud nine, my Wildcats have just won their first championship under Calipari. And I have to say, in general, KU fans are a lot kinder and more civil than Kentucky fans. But sitting in my office in Wesco Hall, I had a lot of people wander by my office to talk to me. And they said some nice, encouraging things, but they also pretty commonly said, well, it doesn't matter that Kentucky won because eventually uh, the NCAA will vacate Calipari's victory and it'll be handed to the Jayhawks. So, I don't know, could happen. Like I said, I've totally drank the Cal Kool-Aid. But these conversations are super awkward. And so my go-to in these conversations was something like, hey, don't feel bad. Like, there's next year. There's next year. And the problem is people see through that, right? That's hollow. They know what I'm saying, but what I really want deep in my heart is for them to leave my office so I can go back to texting party emojis to my college roommates. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure everybody in my office has hated me since then, with the exception of Alfred. So Alfred is a member of, our, of the team at Velocity West, um, and Alfred is an Indiana grad, an IU alum. The fact that the two of us can be friends is just a testimony to the healing power of Jesus. But I think more so it's a testimony to the fact that Indiana is not an elite basketball program anymore. <laughs> so, you know, the verses that we're looking at today have sort of a similar flavor. Starts with two groups meeting on the road. The groups are really different. One's celebrating, the other's in mourning. Coming into Nain is a procession led by Jesus. And at this time in Jesus' ministry, things are starting to take off. Momentum is growing. Jesus is just coming off preaching the Sermon on the Mount, appointing his disciples, healing the centurion's servant. This is right after, the, right after the event where Jesus is in a house and some guys tear the roof off and lower a crippled guy into the house so Jesus can heal him. So you can imagine... Crowds are getting big, and these crowds are made up of the faithful, but also probably the curious. People are amazed at what Jesus is accomplishing. Everywhere he, go, everywhere he goes, big crowds are following. So, but there's also rumors, and these rumors are getting people excited. There are rumors swirling that he might be planning to overthrow Rome and reinstate Jewish rule. He's giving hope to people who haven't had hope for a long time. 
So just picture the scene of this party, parade, celebration, walking down this dusty, remote, rural road towards the gates of a small farming village. If you were in, standing in those gates looking out, this would look pretty overwhelming. It would probably look something like the parties on Mass Street after Jayhawk wins. So picture now the juxtaposition of, there's a big word, right, juxtaposition, but picture the juxtaposition of a funeral procession coming the other way. And it's not just any funeral procession. Luke tells us that this is a funeral for the son of a widow, a woman who has lost her husband and has now lost her only child. Unimaginable tragedy. And maybe for somebody out there, maybe for one of you, not unimaginable because you've lived it. But I want you to picture it in your mind. Put yourself on the road as part of this funeral procession. It's somber. It's quiet, everyone's dressed in black. Eyes are red and swollen from tears. And at the head of that procession is the widow. With all that she's dealing with, the loss of her husband, the loss of her son, there's another dimension that makes this especially difficult for her. At the time after her husband's death, her son would have been her sole financial provider. And this is at a time when society didn't offer women the option to be financially independent. So after her son dies, she's without support. So she's not only struggling with the loss of her family, her future is more than a little uncertain. Things didn't go well so well for widows without families back then. And that's why I think they're, so, they're specifically mentioned so many times in the Bible as groups of people that believers are called to take care of. Her foundations have been shaken. Will she be able to recover? We don't know. So imagine her, put yourself in her shoes. She sees this parade, she sees a celebration coming in the other direction. Who knows what would have been going through her head? I can't imagine some of the thoughts she might have had. How dare these people be celebrating at my greatest moment of grief? Do they not have any idea who I am or care about what I'm going through? Don't they have any respect? I can imagine myself feeling like that. Let's go deeper. Let's be real with each other. We don't know the circumstances of her son and her husband's death. Was it sudden? Were they sick? Did she have time to prepare? Did they suffer? The Bible doesn't record any of that. We also don't know what this woman's beliefs were. Was she a Jew? Let's imagine that she was. Regardless of the circumstances, I can imagine were I in her shoes, I could see myself being pretty angry with God. And she sees Jesus. Now her anger and grief have a visible target. And so you could just imagine her thinking, what did I do to deserve this? Why did you allow this to happen? Even more, if the woman was Jewish, she would have been taught that the bad things that happened to her are the natural result of the sins that she or people in her family have committed because God is fully just. And let's be clear, this woman was a sinner. We don't know what she did. We don't know her name. But we're all sinners, fallen, broken, and imperfect. So she's also probably feeling some guilt and blaming herself. She's thinking thoughts like, if only I were better, if only I were stronger, maybe they would still be here. Or maybe she thinks her sin was small, so she may be wondering why God has singled her out and questioning whether he's really just. Because in her mind, the punishment she's received 
is out of line with her sin. So all these things are swirling through her mind, and she's trying to hold it together for the sake of appearances, and she's bottling up her grief, her worry, her anger, and her doubt. And what does she see walking towards her? The man that many say is God himself in the flesh, and he's leading a party, a parade, a celebration of worship and of praise. If you were the widow, how would this make you feel? Would this make you feel better, or would it make you feel worse? Would you look and see Jesus heading towards you on the road, and would you see hope coming towards you, or would you interpret what you see as just another reminder that God doesn't really care about me and what I'm dealing with? Would you think to yourself, it's bad enough that you took my husband, and then you took my son, and now you're here leading a parade of people who've witnessed and received miracles that you're performing. You could have saved my son. You could have saved my husband, but you didn't. And now your parade's here, throwing it all in my face and interfering with the funeral. You know, it's easy to think that you'd be comforted when you see God coming. But again, if we can be real, if I could be honest with you, there are times in my life where I feel like I'd rather not have God show up and see me in my brokenness. There are times when I see myself in the widow, when I have doubts, when I have anger, when I have frustrations, when I've built my foundation on things other than him. So what happens next? Luke records that Jesus drops everything and goes over to the widow to speak to her. You can imagine the tension that this creates for everybody. There's a party going on, funeral coming the other way. Jesus leaves the procession and of, of, of his believers and goes over to the funeral procession. Think about what this scene would look like. Everybody would just have to immediately just stop what they're doing and look. Everybody's leaning in to hear whatever profound words Jesus is about to say to the suffering widow. And what, is, what does Jesus say? The Bible records him saying exactly two words to her during this entire encounter. What two words can possibly convey the compassion and love and caring that the Bible tells us God feels for us? So what does Jesus say? Two words, don't cry. Don't cry, that's it? Doesn't Jesus know you're never supposed to say that to somebody? Counseling 101 tells us that you're supposed to help the bereaved in their grieving process. Jesus' words, to me, seem like the equivalent of, don't be upset, there's always next year. If this woman wasn't upset with God before, it's hard for me to imagine that she isn't now. Is she strong enough to hear those words the way Jesus intends them? Or maybe a more personal question, would I be strong enough? You took my son, and now you want to take away my right to grieve? You walk up to me, no apology, and in two words tell me that my feelings aren't okay, that I'm overreacting? But that's not the end. After speaking exactly two words to the widow, Jesus does something even more strange. He walks over to the coffin, puts his hand on it, and speaks to the woman's dead son inside. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. Now, we read through these verses. We have the luxury of knowing how the story ends, but the widow doesn't. We know who Jesus is and what his life on earth means for us. She didn't. 
in biblical history, from the beginning of recorded time until this exact moment, there were two times when prophets spoke people back to life. Elijah did it, and Elisha did it. Both of those were generations ago. Jesus has a reputation at this point for healing the sick, not for resurrecting the dead. And the widow sees him go over and knock on the coffin and strike up a conversation with her dead son. Again, imagine her reaction. Put yourself in her shoes. Is this some kind of a cruel joke? Is Jesus mocking me? Is he toying with my emotions? He's interrupted my son's funeral, my chance to memorialize him. You can't just speak to a dead body and expect it to get up. And you know, Jesus, I've heard people talk about who you are. I've heard some people say you're a prophet. Some say you're more than that. You're the redeemer, the one sent to fulfill the prophecies, sent to save the world. And now you're here in the flesh. And Jesus, right now, all I can think about is how I wish you weren't here. It's one thing to believe in the power of God, but there are some lines, Jesus, that aren't meant to be crossed. The laws of Moses are crystal clear. Don't touch things that are polluted by death. The only effect this has is to spread the contamination. Jesus, you've ruined this funeral. And you know what? The woman's right. Jesus did ruin the funeral, but not in the way the widow thinks. Her foundation, which is built on longing for the past, is about to be torn down and completely rebuilt in an instant. In an instant, everything changes for the widow, the mother. The lid of the casket opens and the boy sits up. He begins to speak. I wonder what, he, what would he be saying? Be like, hey guys, what's going on? Or how did I get here and where are you taking me? Jesus takes the boy and gives him back to the mother. The language that the Bible uses here is very precise. The way it's phrased implies something bigger. Like what Jesus is doing, he has the authority to do. Like he has the power and authority over everything. Like the natural world yields to his commands. Like he's in total and complete control. In one moment, life is changed forever for the widow and for her family. Now that's pretty intense stuff. We've walked through the story from the narrative viewpoint of the widow. We've put ourselves in her position and tried to imagine what she must be thinking and how she must be feeling. Now I want to go through the same events with you, but let's view them from the perspective of God. To do this, we have to go back even farther than the road to Nain. Let's go back to Isaiah 46.10. And in that verse, God says, I, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From God's perspective, none of the events of the widow's life are an accident. It's not an accident that Jesus's procession encounters the funeral procession. It's not random circumstance and it's not coincidence. He set these events in motion since the beginning of time and according to his will. And I believe that just like the widow on the road to the cemetery, God put you here because he has a purpose for you. He has something he wants to do in you and something he wants to do through you. And maybe for you, today is a day where you start digging a new foundation. So what about the encounter? Jesus sees the widow. 
whatever he was doing, whatever he was thinking, whatever he was saying, the instant he sees her, everything fades into the background. Everything that he was leading on that walk is cast aside and he's overwhelmed with compassion for the widow and her suffering. But Jesus has to do this. He has to be true to who he is. The translation that we read, we've got the words on the screen, says, his heart overflows with compassion when he sees the widow. Now, I'm not a theologian, um, so I'm not even going to try to pronounce the original Greek word that's translated here as his heart overflows with passion. But studying this to share the word with you, I think this is a case where there's something that's lost in translation. The root of what's translated here as his heart in the Greek doesn't mean heart. It means bowels, entrails. It refers to the part of the body where you feel emotions most intensely. Why is this worth talking about and mentioning? What this tells us is that Jesus' feelings for the widow weren't superficial. They weren't detached. They weren't intellectual. They weren't clinical. They're visceral. Jesus felt her pain in his guts, in the very core of his being. It's important to say this word, this Greek word, isn't used in the Bible very often, only a few times, but we see it again in Luke, in Luke 15, 20, which is the end of the parable of the prodigal son. And so it says, so he returned home to his father, talking about the son, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. He embraced him and kissed him. In this story, the father sees his son coming home and throughout social conventions. He ran to his son, a man who had squandered his inheritance, a man who was unclean, who was clothed in rags, who was living with pigs and surviving by stealing from their food, all because of his own choices. And the father runs to his son and embraces him and kisses him. Society tells us that this makes the father unclean, that the pollution spreads. But just like with the widow, that's not what happens. God doesn't follow our rules. So Jesus sees the widow who's already experienced so much grief and heartache and pain. He sees her anger and her resentment and the scared little child inside her that's worried about the future. He sees all of those things. And what does he do? He loves her to the very core of who he is, deep in his guts. His guts, just like ours, because he so loved us, he gave up his position in heaven to become one of us and experience life as we do, to suffer on our behalf, to offer us a pathway to redemption. Now let's look at Jesus' words, don't cry. How can he say this? He doesn't intend it to be cruel, although... Again, you can imagine yourself in the perspective of the widow interpreting it that way. He says, don't cry, because unlike the widow, Jesus immediately sees and knows the good in the situation. He knows it because he orchestrated it, created it, used her circumstance for his purpose. And take note, this isn't just some, oh, we're going to make the best of a bad situation. Or this isn't a, well, here's a consolation prize to make you feel better. So much more than that. 
Jesus is going to alleviate her suffering by giving her back that which she has lost. Jesus says, don't cry, because he knows what's going to happen next. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So here's the main point of the message I want to deliver you today. I'm going to give it to you in the form of a question. Are your foundations built on the sands of the past or the promise of the Father? Your foundation's built on something. What is it? When you believe what the Bible says, when you trust God to always be working for your good, when you build your foundations deep in Him, your perspective changes. Your foundation withstands. And the widow's story is instantly transformed. So here's what I learned when I was working on this message to share with you. And here's how it changed as I studied and prayed about it. When the story of the widow showed up as I was reading Sandcastle Kings, I immediately earmarked that page, bent it over, and said, here's a message that'll preach. The widow suffered a loss, a huge loss, unimaginable loss, but good came from it. The good that came from it is that it created the opportunity for the crowd that's following Jesus to witness the son being brought back from the dead. Like I said, a lot of these people maybe weren't faithful believers. They were just curious or there for the party. But when you see the dead brought back to life, that changes your perspective a little bit. So my original read on this was this justifies the widow's suffering because that suffering had purpose. Through it, God's kingdom grew and more people believed. But here's what I want to share with you. Maybe that interpretation isn't wrong. But I think it misses so much about God's purpose and his intent and his will. So what is God's purpose in the widow's suffering? Jesus' encounter with the widow isn't about redeeming people in the crowd at the expense of the widow. Jesus didn't come to earth to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. His encounter with the widow is to bring, back her, is to bring her back to life, move her past her suffering, past her grief, Make her focus move beyond her circumstances and situation and beyond the pain that's in her past. Helping her see that her foundation can be rebuilt. Leading her to see herself for what she truly is. Loved. Not abandoned. Loved. Not forsaken. Loved. Not incomplete. Loved. Loved when bad things happen. Loved when she doesn't seek it. Love when all she feels is empty. Love when consumed by anger, pain, doubt, grief, guilt. Love beyond all comprehension and beyond all measure. And that's the story of the Gospels, the good news about God. He makes things better. He loves us deep in his guts. He steps in and volunteers to take on our contamination, our pollution. He gives us back the things that we've lost. He rushes in to stand between us and the pain of the brokenness of this world. And he raises the dead. It's not when we expect it. A lot of times it's not when we would like it to happen. But see God for who he is. The one who crashes funerals and who gives life back to everyone who asks to receive it.